Hear the word of God. Hebrews 12, 18 through 28. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptedly with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Susan, for reading the passage with such late notice. And thanks, Chris, for the introduction. You know, he mentioned that I was old, like a lot, like older brother and old. I just turned 50, and I don't know what I feel about that, bro. Uh, Chris is a good friend and a good pastor, and uh, I'm thankful to be able to be here with him and his family and to serve you this morning through God's Word. At my church, I like to start by addressing the children Young Christians, little theologians, have you ever been so scared that you started to shake? My six-year-old deacon loves Scooby-Doo, and we talked about how Scooby and Shaggy see lots of scary things, and how their teeth start to rattle, and their bodies start to shake, and then Scooby will jump into Shaggy's arms, and suddenly both start shaking, and then almost simultaneously stop shaking. Have you ever been that scared? If so, what scared you? It's, if you haven't been that scared, that's okay. I bet there are things that still do scare you, things that terrify you. What are those things? You can draw me a picture of some things that scare you or terrify you and show them to me after the service. I also want you to listen in the sermon for why the people of God shake and what God does for them when they shake with fear. And last, 
Talk to your parents about what they are afraid of, like today. Mom, dad, what scares you? And what do they do when they shake with fear? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that your word would do its work in us. That your mercy truly would be a match for our hearts, our hard hearts, that we might experience the mercy of God to such a degree this morning through your word, by your spirit, that the hardness of our hearts truly would disappear. And that your spirit would come and convince us once again of the covenant love found in Jesus, your son. We ask all of this this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My 18-year-old daughter likes to use the phrase, I'm shook. She uses it not so much to describe the physical exactly, but more the, the metaphysical, the situational, the existential. She might say, I'm shook when watching a scary movie and there's some sort of surprising twist or shocking detail that's revealed at some point in the film. She uses it when a superstar is befallen or a friend or classmate has suffered. She uses it when she reads the latest gossip online or when she and my wife are angry at the who the bachelor chose or which guy did the bachelorette wrong. She's shook, she says, to the core. In the fall of 1755, a terrible earthquake hit Lisbon, Portugal, with a magnitude of 8.4. Its effects were felt. They were terrible across the board. Tens of thousands were killed. The city was in ruins. The economy was devastated. But the earthquake didn't just shake the physical. It also shook Portugal and, consequently, Europe existentially. Their cultural consciousness was shaken. The earthquake shook the land beyond just buildings and roads and fields. When we are shook, we lose certainty, our sure footing, and our thinking becomes a buffeted and stumbling mess. I was in an earthquake once. It was in Louisville, Kentucky. I was up early to catch a flight. I was finishing packing my suitcase, and things started to shake. It oddly felt like a strong gust of wind, but I was inside, and I peeked outside, and the trees were not moving, and I was shook, both literally and like, ex like existentially. My mind quite tried to quickly piece together what was happening, and I realized it was an earthquake. And then it was over. A few things fell off buildings. I went to the airport that morning. I met Kelly Pickler, weirdly, in line, checking my bags. You might not know her. She used to be like American Idol famous. And the whole experience like felt surreal, and yet it was a weird, memorable day. To cope with the Lisbon earthquake, the shook people began to accuse each other, left and right. Catholics blamed the earthquake on the sins of the Portuguese, saying God had had enough of their unrighteousness. The Protestants blamed the Portuguese, saying it was their Catholicism that did them in. Rousseau, the philosopher of the day, blamed the architects of the city and the city planners. Some citizens of Lisbon just shrugged their shoulders and a popular saying emerged, what is, is right. Meaning that God had ordained the earthquake and the people needed to accept it and moved on. An ancient version of 
It is what it is. In response to this, Voltaire, the French philosopher, says, Come, philosophers who cry, all is well, and contemplate the ruins of the world. You shout, all is well. The universe contradicts you. And your heart refutes your mind's error a hundred times over. One day, all will be well. This is our hope. All is well today. That is an illusion. Sam Bush is a musician. He quotes about this. He says, he recognized that, Voltaire recognized that rationalizations, even divine ones, for the disaster amounted to disregard of the suffering itself. Even in the chaos and the destruction of the Lisbon disaster, he refrained from saying it is what it is or it's all good. Or like today, weird times. Right? In the age of COVID, there's no shortage of being shook. Weird times, weird disease, weird responses. We've all been shook. Now, some of us have certainly been shook physically. Loss has become a part of our lives. Death is closer than some of us remember. For others, it harkens back to other apocalyptic moments when we were shook, not just physically, but also psychologically. And to cope, to deal, to control, we've resorted to the same mechanisms as Lisbon, blame and denial. We have no shortage of these things, ways to be unshook, to somehow grasp hold of philosophical guardrails or handles to keep us from being shook. And the easiest and quickest handrail, like those in the aftershocks of Lisbon, is blame and denial. Whether it's blaming liberals or conservatives, the governor, the mayor, the president, the neighbor who won't wear a mask, the one who does in the car and outside, we're buffeted, so we buffer ourselves to withstand the onslaught. All of us are like boxers, getting beat into the corner, jostled up into it, blows raining down, we cover up and protect ourselves. Philosopher Charles Taylor calls this modern phenomenon the buffered self, the way autonomous, free, independent-thinking individuals attempt to keep themselves free from anything that will keep them from pursuing an authentic path. We shut out incursions of the divine and the demonic to carve out a privatized space to be free on our own terms. We love freedom. We must be free. And so the buffered self, in an attempt to protect itself from the buffeting blows of an uncontrollable, supernatural, and natural world outside of its control, protects itself through isolation, individually, control. We blame and deny because we can't and don't want to let the fear, the pain, the unknown in. When we're shook, we grab hold of something, anything, everything, so we don't have to deal with the reality that we're not God and we're not in control. In Hebrews, the Christians of the day are shook. They are buffeted by a loss of social capital and standing. They're suffering under the weight of being ostracized in the marketplace, both of commerce and ideas. They are tempted in that moment to shrink back, like plastic wrap under heat. Their duress is causing them to contemplate their faith, 
They're being held captive to the winds of angel worship. They're denying their need or habit of gathering together for worship. They are thinking about returning to the old traditions of Judaism so they can be accepted instead of rejected. And on top of all that, they're blaming God. They're blaming one another. They're shook. And they're looking for handles, grasping for something to hold on to. And here the author of the letter reminds them that they come from a long line of shook and buffeted people. Just as they're being shook now, so too were their forefathers. Their forefathers were shook at Mount Sinai where a holy and completely other type of God met them in the desert. Heaven came down and sat on a mountain. And because God was wholly other, they couldn't touch that mountain. Why? Because if they touched it, they might be like the animals that touch it and die. Their very world shook, and so did their hearts. Moses went up onto the mountain and even said, I tremble with fear at its sight. Have you ever been shook by what you could see? For boating forecast of weather or statistical data, the white face of your child, the tears of a spouse, an accident that comes onto you unexplainably. I remember my sister one time, we were, had been away outside of our house, my dad was away on a trip, and we came home, and the window was open, and my sister went into her room, and she came out, and she confessed to everyone that she saw somebody in the room, and her face was just plain white. Have you ever been shook by something you could see? They weren't just shook by what they could see, by the way. They were shook by also what they heard. The people gathered around the mountain of Sinai heard a sound that was so ter terrible that it shook them to your, their core. Have you ever been shook by a sound? I, my dogs, anytime someone comes to the door, rings it, knocks on it, walks in, just start barking, and every time, every time, it shakes me. It's a sound, a roaring sound, the writer of Hebrews describes, the voice of the Lord, and it terrified the people of Israel with fear. Israel lived here at a foot of the mountain, and when they were shook, what did they do? They tried to find handles. When Moses disappears on the top of the mountain, day after day, it appeared he wasn't coming back. I mean, who could blame them? He didn't enter, a, he entered a shaking and smoking and roaring mountain and he didn't come back. And so they made a calf of gold, had carnival saying, in essence, let's stop being afraid of a God we can't control and at least distract ourselves about him and create something we can control and can see. Let's forget our parties, our, our, our cares and party for a moment. The Hebrews here in the letter are doing something similar. They're shrinking back because of a loss of income, cultural cachet. Their current world and moment is lost. And their temptation is not to endure this discipline from the Lord, but to find handles and stop the shaking. We can stop being maligned if we just practice our old faith. Go back to the temple practice sacrifice, get our sons circumcised. We can stop being shook if we stop meeting with the Christians in the public places. We can stop the constant whispers if we just kind of be low-key Jewish for a bit. Handles, control, stop the shaking. This was the same thing their 
forefathers and mothers did. And so the preacher says, there's one problem with this. You are shook. This seems to be the most true. But that mountain, Sinai, it's not your mountain. This is what the preacher does all throughout the book of Hebrews, by the way. He compares and contrasts the old ways and the new ways. The ways of the law and the ways of grace. The old priest and the new priest. The old temples and the new temples. The old sacrifices and the one sacrifice. And here, the old mountain Sinai with the new mountain Zion. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels partying like it's carnival, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You are shook. You think that shaking is your birthright. And to deal with it, you do what you do. You grab hold of handrails of your own making and you attempt to keep your buffered soul from being buffeted anymore. You assume the pose. But this isn't you. Your story has been rewritten. You belong to a different city, a different kingdom. Notice he says that this future hope, the heavenly Jerusalem, is actually your current hope. It isn't just later for the Hebrews. In some sense, in the now of their shaking, in this shaking place, in this shaking city, in the existential earthquakes of malignment and persecution, right there, in that moment, the preacher says, this is your real world, is not that. It's something else. And so the answer isn't to latch hold of power, whatever power you can grab hold of, and regain influence. The answer the preacher gives when they are shaking isn't gain back the cultural power, regain the lost positions. Instead, he attributes this loss they are experiencing to the Lord, saying earlier in chapter 12, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and then says, in the midst of the shaking, remember you are someone else and you are somewhere else. Your life in the shaking city is actually in the new Jerusalem. In other words, they participate in heaven now, and so do we. We stand in both places. We stand in this shook city of pandemics and politics, a shook city of malignment, where our faith might be persecuted, where we are in constant conflict. The, the shook city traumatizes us and leaves us shaking. The shook city where everything is uncertain and life is so fragile. Here it feels like we're just buffered selves, and we attempt to cover up because Conor McGregor is charging us. But you're not in that city. You're present in another one. And even as it shakes, you belong to a city, the writer of Hebrews says, that has foundations like real foundations. They go all the way down. That's your true city in midst of the shook one. And in this city is the firstborn of the dead. Here the preacher is referring to the church ancient, the heroes of the face that he just talked about in Hebrews 11, and the unknowns whose names aren't known, but all of them, he says, are written down, enrolled in heaven. Their names are known. They aren't alone. They are known, and it can't be revoked. Like in the unshook mountain, what these saints are experiencing is what we are and will experience. Your name is known. Your tears are kept in a bottle. 
They who also suffered. They who the preacher says that the world was not worthy. They who had faith in all of the greatest disappointments. They who are sawed in two. They who the world is not worthy of. Their names are enrolled in heaven. And so are yours. You're known. Maybe you're not known here. Maybe even in this tent assembly, you sit here today alone, unknown. But in Zion, your name is enrolled with all these others. Known. And it can't be unenrolled. You can't be canceled here. In this place, you are known and you are, and that is the deepest reality. You live on this new mountain, and there, he says, God is the judge. Not like Sinai the judge, but a judge that is making things perfect, rectifying what is broken. I love that word, rectification. This is the business that our God is in. He is in the business of taking old things and making them new. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to these people who are tempted to go back to the old ways, that you don't have to go back to the old ways because I brought a new way and that's where you live, in this new place, this new city, this new mountain. That's what's most true of you. And on this mountain, there are angels dressed to do their work, to bring messages to and from heaven, to us and back again, to offer worship in heaven as it is on earth, and to bring worship from heaven back to us on earth. The resurrected one is here. The one that was shook on the cross all the way down to the catechismic place of the grave. And when he got there, he gave that place the shake down. This same Jesus entered the most holy place like the priest would do on the most holy day of the year, but that priest would enter that temple with a rope tied around his waist in case God struck that priest down. This priest, Jesus, is a better priest. He enters into that most holy place and gets shook down so we can remain unshook. Jesus is the true high priest, the once for all high priest, who went into the shook place and his blood covers our blood-stained hands and our quaking hearts. The writer of Hebrews says Abel's blood cries out from the ground for vengeance. In the shook world of the vengeful and those who need avenging, is there any more way to be shook than being a victim? Here the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Abel's victimhood is blood crying out from a ground. And we think that that's the most important blood that the priest could apply. Vengeance. But it's not. The blood of Jesus, the true high priest, enters in and covers both victim and perpetrator alike. The need for more blood vengeance is covered in atonement. The blamers and the deniers, the right and the left, the accused and the accusing. Here the pastor says, good news, you've come to him and his blood is enough to provide for your vengeance and your forgiveness. And because you've come to him, he says, you can come to God. Even if this God is a consuming fire. You see, in the shook places, everything you have and everything you are, your accomplishments, 
your charming disposition, your intellect, your connections, your sin, your anxieties, your shame, your very self is all burned up by the righteousness of God. And that might not sound like good news, but when we are disrupted by God, everything that needs the shakedown gets shook. And yet, when the flames have subdued in the soft glow of the embers, one thing remains. God's promise. It's the only thing that's not turned to ash. It's indestructible. If there's any doubt in your mind, Isaiah 54 explicitly says, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love, it won't depart from you. My covenant of peace, it won't be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. You see, God's promise is stronger than your accomplishments. It's stronger than your sin. It's stronger than you. It's stronger than death. And God may not be in the entertainment business, but he is in the business of death and resurrection. And you've come to him. The God who rectifies it all by his son, the one who makes it right. And so, yes, now you do stand in both places. You do stand in the shook city and the secure city. You stand on two mountains, the quaking one and the rock solid one. And out on the horizon is the reality. More shaking will come. The preacher says, God will shake the heavens and the earth. There is judgment. There is the discipline of the Lord. But hear this. That shaking is purifying. So that what remains is no longer shakable. What remains is undone by the unshakable so that all that's left is unshakable. And so in our grasping of handles for control... Isn't that what we're after? We're after things being unshakable. And so here the writer of Hebrews says, you will inherit this kingdom and you reside in it now. Because of Jesus, because he's walked where we walked, because he suffered for it, because his sufferings, even to the point of death, didn't shake him forever, we have an unshakable hope and our truest city is an unshakable one. And so the response, the application, first is a call for faith. He says, see to it that you do not receive this one who is speaking. Even if the one who is speaking says, he will bring more shaking. It is a call to faith in his goodness. That the aim of such shaking is to reveal what is unshakable. And what does it look like? What does it look like to listen and not refuse that voice. Well, I think it looks like Scooby jumping into Shaggy's arms. Scooby jumps into Shaggy's arms. Why? He knows that he's been there before, and he trusts by Shaggy's very presence that Shaggy will hold him up and will keep him from being totally overcome by the shaking. In, some, in one sense, they shake together, and then they undo the shaking. Faith looks like that. Shaken, we jump into the one who was shaken for us so we might be held and made unshakable. So this morning, what has you shaken? What's backed you into the corner? What's buffeting down blow upon blow on you? 
I know like at least a little bit of the current story here at Redeemer. We're gathered in a tent. You've suffered over the last 20 months. And then to put a capstone on it, you've suffered incredible loss. And your pastor is on sabbatical. And it seems like the shaking isn't going to stop. It isn't just that, by the way. Maybe you sit here with failure on your mind. Fear that you'll be found out that you're just an imposter. Constrained by money, conflict, marriage, broken down, sons or daughters who have left the faith. And all of it seems to be shaking you to unshakable, to, to just shakable places. It makes us groan, right? Maybe it makes us grumble. Groaning is faith. Grumbling isn't, by the way. Groaning is handles. Or grumbling is handles. Groaning is placing your faith in what's shaking you in an unshakable one. Groaning is the rattling of the teeth. And you're called in these moments to groan. You really are. The temptation is to grumble, to complain, to somehow find handles through voicing your anxiety to another so someone else will carry your anxiety and grumble. And instead, you're called to groan, to groan in this shakable place for the unshakable place, to lament what's happening in the shakable place with the hope centered on the unshakable one. That's what the preacher's inviting the Hebrews to do, to get their eyes off the moment, to get the eyes off their malignment and their persecution, to not shrink back in grumbling, but to groan out their faith towards the one that can actually leave only the unshakable. He invites the church to add to this grateful hearts with acceptable worship, to have awe and reverence. He invites the church to gather once again and worship. In a world full of fright, we gather, we worship, we surround ourselves in the shook world with others who experience the same shaking, yet in different ways, and we cling to the one who is unshook together. Don't miss this, because pandemic shaking has in some way tried to steal this from us. We need to meet together and worship together and gather around tables together, however it can be done, with an eye towards neighbor love. We need to see our God, the consuming fire, and the judge who is rectifying a world to set it right. And third, he calls us to hope. Hope tends to undermine blame and denial, the two ways we grab for handrails. Hope says the solution rests outside of us. We do need rescue. We do need rectification. Suffering and hope go hand in hand. In hope, we hold on tightly to the apparent paradox, all is not well, yet all will be well. In the aftermath of the great Lisbon earthquake and the other floods and pandemics, it is the only solid ground on which we stand. The Christian hope is something to which we can cling with all our might because it's none other than the very presence of God clinging to us. Christian hope undermines the handles in the 
shaking of the blame game because it orients us to a person outside of our circumstances, to a a different future, another city, another foundation. It also undermines our false optimism because it's a real promise vowed by a faithful God in a world that has been shaken. It is the only solid ground. And that leads us, lastly, to our mission. The the wild, wild world of the real, where other people are really quaking and shaking with every news event and every tweet. See, in the world, our quaking stories meet up with a God's unshakable one. And those stories meet up with other neighbors who are quaking with fear. All the places they're quaking and shaking and are buffeted. All the ways they try to protect themselves by buffering their own lives, going into emotional and spiritual lockdown. Such were some of us before we met the unshakable Savior. And even too, we're still tempted to shrink back into this buffeted self. The other story. But your story is a place for the unshaken redemption of God to enter into theirs. Your very story of being shook is meant to be a place where others experience redemption in their shakenness. Now, let me end with this. Like, I, too, uh, <clears throat> took sabbatical during pandemic. Six months, I was away from my church. My church was shaken by that event, just like you. It was hard. I remember I was halfway through my sabbatical. I went to Target. I saw one of my elder's wives. She was shook. And she came to me immediately and started offloading her anxiety, which is very much against sabbatical policy and rules. But I understood. And so I kind of entered back into the, some of the story that was happening at the time, which was just like a lot of stories that are happening right now in churches all across the world. And then I left. And then I came back. And what I've come back to is a church that is trying to find handles. Blaming, denying one another, elders, me. Now I tell you this so you don't do that. In September, when Giorgio comes back, what Chris said in class is true. It's not going to fix things, and he's not going to act very rested, and you might be mad about that. Hey, man, we just gave you a bunch of time off, bro. Try not to do that. Instead, in this very shakable moment where your pastor is very shook, still, And you all are experiencing it too. My invitation today is to cling to Jesus who was shook for you so that even as you are shaking and quaking in fear, you might just continually jump back up into his arms again and again and again. Let's pray. God, as we come to the table, I pray that you would remind us today that this table is the promissory note the signet ring, the coat. 
the promise that we truly are going to be ushered into the heavenlies right now in this moment to feast with you, and that's what's most real. This measly portion of bread and wine is not what's most real. What's most real is your spiritual presence with us and your broken body and blood. And that's our future. That's our guarantee. Let us taste the promise today, the thing that won't turn to ash. Remind us this morning, it is magic. It does something in us and to us as we apprehend it by faith to keep on going, to keep on believing that this is the most true thing about us. We live on Zion, the city of our unshakable God. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.